Yesterday I was reading once again <clears throat> something that I have seen again and again in John Calvin as a hero of mine, um, and that is that he exhorts his people in the middle of a sermon not to be offended by the sins and failures of the one who preaches to them and to not consider themselves above or superior um, to the man who is way below them. And when he says below, what he means is that often preachers at that time came from a lower social class. And this was back in a day when social class mattered. All right. Today, what matters to us is, you know, the Horatio Algers thing. You know, that everybody has the ability of rising up to the level of their achievement and all you have to do is believe in yourself and, you know, you'll lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. Well, back in that day, it was often the case that the one that preached to them was below their station in life, like the king being, you know, being preached to by a chimney sweep, if you will. All right. And so I want to begin this morning by exhorting you to uh, not be offended at the fact that there is a man who is a sinner, that there is a man who is proud, a man who has a black suit on today, who is preaching to you. Don't be superior to me. Don't look down on me. Don't, don't be scandalized by the fact that God chooses a faulty man to preach to you. Because, as Calvin says over and over again, God could have spoken to you directly. You realize that. Many men he's spoken to directly. And he could have spoken to you with an angel. You realize that. There are many men that God spoke to through angels. He could have chosen to speak to you simply through the Bible. But he says God chooses to use men. Why? Because it humbles you. So the purpose of having a man preach to you is that it humbles you. Now, I don't know exactly how that works, but I know it does work. And it is frustrating to have men preach to us, men who have not prepared as they should, men who are ugly, men who have bad breath, and men who are uh, stupid compared to us. But let God deal with you in a way that humbles you, because then you're prepared for Jesus, okay? Now, this morning, I want you to turn, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. We're taking a break from Matthew, and we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 because, well, there are a number of reasons. But one of the principal reasons is today is a very, very special day in the life of our church um, because what we're seeing today is the first fruit of um, a work that began, what, four years ago, five years ago, where we got tired of sending men off to seminaries. And what we saw when they went off to seminaries is that often when they got back, they'd been emasculated, that the academy had done a good number on them, and they'd lost the male principle. And we believe the male principle is central to what God's purpose is for preaching and shepherding. Uh, we think that there's a reason why Jesus chose 12 disciples from working men. I, this morning I was thinking, and, and I'll get back to this later in the sermon, I believe, but I was thinking in the first service about uh, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Have any of you been to Gloucester up on Cape Ann in Massachusetts? You've been there? Only one person? Did you go down to the docks? Yeah, yeah. And what are the docks like? 
Well, beautiful but ugly. Yeah, stinky. Yeah, that's, yeah, stinky. Yeah, they stink. They're a bunch of guys sitting around, crusty dudes, mending nets. You actually can see them doing that. And uh, it is dirty. It's very dirty. It smells. There are a lot of seagulls, you know, making lots of noise. And what? Well, I'm interested in what you... Yeah, bird droppings everywhere. That's right. Yep. This is the life that Jesus chose his disciples from. There was nobody among the disciples from the Boston Common or from Cambridge. Not one of them. There were no doctors. There were no attorneys. And there weren't even registrar office computer dudes. Everybody there had calluses on their hands. I'll never forget after... (laughs) I was very proud of the fact when I went in the ministry that I'd worked like a dog until the moment I went in the ministry. But then about two years after being in the ministry, there's a woman from South America who came up. And she was visiting our church no, she wasn't visiting our church. I don't know where I met her, but I met her somewhere. And when I introduced myself to her, um, she asked, somehow it came up that I had worked on the Chicago Northwestern Railway. And she took my hand back, and she held it like this, and she said, you know work on railroad. <laughs> no calluses left, none. Well, all the disciples had calluses. These were men. And so... What we have seen is that it's imperative in America today when the university is the reigning uh, queen, I won't call it a king, of our culture, that in the church we have men and women who have courage because it is an evil day that we live in. Um, And so uh, David and Stephen and the elders decided to start a pastor's college, and I have to admit that I was somewhat dragging my feet. Um, After all, my son would be one of the first guinea pigs. And, uh, you know, you look at your son, you think, on the one hand, you could have a degree from an accredited institution and have, you know, the union card. My dad always referred to the MDiv as the union card of pastoral ministry. And that wasn't a compliment from my father. And uh, on the other hand, you could, well, here we have it four years later. Stephen has led us. Um, David's church up in uh, Toledo has also done the same thing. I think we both have about seven students now, right? Four. Okay, so 13 now. So there's a total of 13 students who have been enrolled in graduating or who are still en- enrolled. And uh, if you want to put that in perspective, David Wegner teaches with about how many teachers? Maybe eight at Tika in, in Zambia, and they currently have 23 students. In other words, a lot of work is being done here in, in, up in Toledo. And so what I've been thinking about today on this day, because I will not be speaking this evening, so I'm kind of cheating this morning. And I've been thinking about the work of this church and the leadership of this church. Now, I have to apologize at the beginning to you. One of the realities that you have to deal with when it comes to the Bible and the church is that when we process our lives, we process them through men. All right? 
We don't process them normally through women. And so when you read the Bible, it's not that the feminists hadn't come along and taught us that we should do more social history. It's that the Bible is filled with the public actions and has much less about the private actions. And so, like, for instance, Esther appears because she becomes a part of the public kingdom story, right? But rarely do you have that kind of thing. You have, a, you have Priscilla and Aquila showing up, but it's clear their instruction was private of Apollos, all right? And so generally what you have to do when you come to the Bible, if you're a woman, is you have to realize that it doesn't mean women don't matter. But it means that generally the public ministry of the church is carried on by men. Now, the truth is, if any of you have grown up in a good marriage, you know that if you had to separate out which one of your parents had greater influence on the direction of the home, and you had to choose between your mother and your father as to leading the direction of your home, it would be hard to choose, right? I remember when Heather was a very little girl asking her one day, who do you love more, mommy or daddy? We did all kinds of things with Heather as an experiment. And if you don't like her personality, then you know who to blame. Um, I love her personality. And uh, Heather looks at me, and she looks at Mary Lee, and then she says, that's a bad question. <laughs> but that's, that's indicative of the difficulty children have in saying who is a, more of a leader in the home, right? And my father and mother and Mary Lee's parents all went to Wheaton in the 1940s. They all graduated from college uh, with that group of evangelical leaders that became known nationally. And one of the people that was best known at that time in, in, at their college was Billy Graham. And they all knew each other. They knew who Billy, who, who Billy had dated before he married Ruth, you know, that kind of knowledge. And uh, one day my father was out preaching. Uh, I don't know where it was, somewhere in the country. And a woman came up to him afterwards that he had known from Wheaton College. And she said to him, you know, she greeted him. And then she said to him, as a way of expressing her dissatisfaction with her husband, she said to him, you know, often I sit and I wonder what my wife, my life would have been like if I had married Billy Graham. And my father looked at her and he said, well, he said, maybe a better question is, what kind of life do you think Billy Graham would have had if he had married you? And now you know who my father was and why I am the way I am. <laughs> but, I mean, that was the perfect rebuke. The truth is that God has set up the home and marriage in such a way that it is very difficult to say who leads whom. And the man who finds a prudent wife has received a gift from the Lord. So don't be offended when the Bible processes life through men. But this morning I want us to focus on a text that does process through men. Because I think it's a beautiful text to look at our church at this time. And those of you that are visiting, it's a little bit intimate, sorry. But you'll have to live with it. <laughs> so let's read together. Um, Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses. Um, well, actually I'm going to start at the beginning of the chapter, because I want you to get a feel for the flow as we come to the text we're going to focus on, which is verses 19 to 22. 
Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, I think if you've ever known a Jewish mother, you should realize at the beginning of this text that this is a Jew who is writing. Because he is really going for it in trying to bring unity to his family. And so even the word any, if there's any, I should read it the way a Jewish mother was, if there's any, right? Okay, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And you feel him tugging on every heartstring, don't you? If there's any, all right, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It's impossible, isn't it? It's absolutely impossible. If you've ever had children, you know, your kids are fighting. You say, come on, you know, your brother is not, you know, consider him more important than yourselves. So what's going on in Philippi is that the Christians are fighting. They're divided. That's what you see all through the book of Philippians. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then we go into this part that everybody knows, which is the uh, great prayer of praise of Jesus Christ. And now you see the context, which is the church is divided, and so he goes off. On Jesus Christ and how he related to us. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed. Now, if, if your mother was trying to get you to be united with your brothers and your sisters and she pulled Jesus into it, how would you feel? You'd kind of feel like it was high handed, right? Oh, come on. Jesus. You know. Get a life. Just deal with me, you know. We're not in heaven, you know. This is just me and my brother, you know. But Paul does never make a separation between doctrine and practice. Never. He does not have one life for home, one life for church, one life for school, one life for faith. Everything about the Apostle Paul, and this is why everybody hates him and tries to kill him all the time. Everything about the Apostle Paul is fully integrated Okay, have this mind, this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he's not just an older brother, but God did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. In other words, look at Jesus. You're not united. Come on. Consider others better than yourself. Look at Jesus. He was God. He emptied himself. And and you know what happened? Here's what happened because he did it. Therefore, what? For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, unbelievable reward, no other name like his, none. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he's a Jewish father. Back in now. Here we go. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because God's working in you. So what is working out their own salvation? Well, it must be them studying doctrine and reading Calvin, right? It must be them going off as a short-term missionary to Haiti, right? It must be them having ten people they share the faith with on the campus, right? No. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, the unity of the body of Christ, the peace and sweetness of the family is what starts it, it's what's in the middle, and it's what's at the end. And Jesus is a tool to bring unity to the body of Christ. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling is a description of doing nothing in a complaining spirit and grumbling. It is a description of what it means to seek unity with other believers. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I didn't run in vain nor toil in vain. Unity, 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 peace, sweetness, unity, love, peace, sweetness, unity. The world talks about this stuff all the time. The world talks about pluralism, diversity. The world talks about inclusivity, all this, all this, you know, the world knows absolutely nothing about it. It is, it is the enforced um, administrative uh, civil rights commissioned uh, loveless uh, brow beating, and it never works, never ever works. One of the things I always tell people about Indiana University in Bloomington is that we pride ourselves on being so inclusive, so diverse, so tolerant. And it's a bunch of bunk. First of all, I've had some friends uh, who were from, shall we say, a different color than mine living in this community. And you should have heard one of my friends talking about what it was like to drive out of Bloomington being the color he was. Sweet, sweet Christian brother. And he was fearful. And he was not a coward. You should have heard how he'd talk about Martinsville. So we say, yeah, that's Bloomington, that's Martinsville. I say, no, it's a bunch of bunk. You think Bloomington is tolerant and inclusive? It's not at all. You know how you know that? Look at how the east side looks at the west side. The dirty secret about Bloomington is that the snobbery of Bloomington is not focused on people of color. It's focused on people without an education. You go into the university and you say, well, what about equal rights for people that have black stubs for teeth? And there will be no talk of tolerance for people that live in double whites, let me tell you. Now, how then will this church stick out in a world like that, where everybody prides themselves on being racially inclusive and ethnically inclusive and culturally inclusive and, and sexually inclusive, all right? 
And there's absolutely no tolerance for people who are educationally diverse. How will this church stick out? Well, the way this church will stick out is that we will not make distinctions among ourselves based on the content of our creed and the color of our... No. It will be on the real issue, which is the issue of poor people versus rich people and people who have never gotten a degree and people who have. Okay? In other words... When Christians live in unity, and it's not an enforced unity of an administrative commission, human rights commission, civil rights commission, but it's the unity of sweet, sweet love. When Christians live in this way, what happens? Well, it says it here. It says, if I can find it, yes, verse 15, among whom you appear as lights in the world. In other words, people that come into this church will say, that church is diverse. That church is inclusive. And it doesn't seem like they have a human rights commission enforcing it. It seems to be natural. It seems to be a part of who they are, right? And then Paul says, I won't have run in vain. I won't have worked in vain but I will be producing fruit. And then he calls in the heartstrings again. He says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So as he goes along, teaching us to be united in love and sweetness, he then says, this will be my payoff And remember, I am being poured out as a drink offering. Well, a drink offering means that Paul is a prisoner in Rome, in prison, chained to jailers under the emperor Nero. Okay? That's what he means by being poured out as a drink offering. Now we get to the text I want us to focus on. He says, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Isn't that a beautiful text? He's working for the unity of the church, and now he shows this unity with a man of the the church, and the man is Timothy, okay? When I was in Wisconsin, Joel isn't here, is he? When I was in Wisconsin, um, there was a picture that was popular. Sometimes you'd see it on refrigerators. A lot of uh, the people that we lived with and loved were farmers. And it was a picture of two men walking out of a barn door. And both of them had bib overalls on. Both of them had the same color hair. Both of them had the same shaped head. Uh, Both of them had the same stride. They were picture copies of each other, mirror images. All right. And one of the men had a big bucket in his hand. And one of the men was about 40, and one of the men was about three. 
and it was father and son. And it was so sweet because of the unity of the two men. It was so obvious in everything they did. You know, it's the old Harry Chapin song, grow up to be like you, Dad, you know, I'm going to be like you. And you have to beat it out of a man, don't you? Right? So here this little boy is. He's the one that's carrying the bucket, not his dad, right? And that's the picture that we're dealing with with Paul and Timothy. Timothy has such a close identification with... Well, who is it that he has an identification with? You could make a very, very easy mistake at this point. What you could do is think that the church and its unity and love and intimacy is the basis of charismatic men who are able to get other men to love them. Do you think the Apostle Paul was charismatic? Not Pentecostal, but charismatic. In other words, did he have a strong personality that was able to get people to love him? Is that how you explain the New Testament, all of the sweet relationships Well, I don't think so, because if you look at the New Testament, what you see is that Paul has such a charismatic personality that his entire life is one of being beaten and of stoned and of being shipwrecked and of being hungry and then beaten and then stoned and then almost murdered and then plots against him and then beaten and then stoned. That's the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, I think a good travelogue description of the book of Acts would be the Apostle Paul preached, they attacked him, he escaped with his life barely intact, and went to the next city and began preaching. Repeat, 20 times. So was the Apostle Paul so charismatic that everybody just loved him, like Joel Osteen? You think there's any similarity between the Apostle Paul and Joel Osteen? Any? Any? No. None. Because Joel Osteen is not barely escaping with his life. So the reason that preachers today are so respected and treated with such honor today, as we are, I mean, you've seen all the honor. I'm getting accolades in this town all the time, you know. The reason we all have such honor today is that we live in a righteous time and the Apostle Paul lived in a wicked time, right? And that's what we all think. We all think that we live in a Christian nation and even though it's going to hell in a handbasket, it's still basically Christian. And so we shouldn't really, you know, expect to be persecuted or to suffer today. And the New Testament is just filled with warnings such as Jesus saying, beware when all men speak well of you. So what caused the unity between the Apostle Paul and Timothy? Was it that Timothy was charismatic and everybody loved him? Was it the Apostle Paul was charismatic and everybody loved him? They found each other and they became father and son. Is that what it was? Here's what it says. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests and not my interests. Is that what it says? No. It says, they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. Do you know what? Remember I said that when a church seeks love and unity amongst itself, it will shine like a star. 
You know what makes that church shine like a star is that people in that church love Christ. And because they love Christ, they love each other. That's it. There is no unity, there is no diversity, and there is no inclusivity in this world that does not come from Jesus Christ. And any unity that we claim to have, any family relationship that we claim to have that is not through Jesus Christ is a false unity. It's a usurper to the unity of eternity. And that's scandalous to us. The hardest things Jesus ever said that we hate. I remember the last time I brought this up in a sermon. Oh, man, you guys were angry at me. Because I talked about how sometimes God divides husbands and wives. Do you remember that? Oh, you were angry at me. The hardest thing Jesus ever said is that if you're going to follow him, you have to hate your father and mother and your brother and your sister. And he mentions wives. And we hate that. Because we think that to be Christian and to have family values is the same thing. Family values is Christianity, and Christianity is family values. And and it's true if the word family begins with a capital F. And if the family are the brothers and sisters and the mothers and fathers of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said? Not maybe the most scandalous thing he ever said, because he spent his life saying scandalous things. I mean, let's, let's get a right picture of Jesus. All right. But one of the most scandalous things he ever said is found in the book of Matthew, the 12th chapter. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. Jesus says this, beginning with verse 46. There are a lot of people around him. The crowds are pressing in on him. And it says, verse 46, While Jesus, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's a pretty, pretty, pretty hard statement. I remember on the blog one time there was a long discussion about whether or not this was showing disrespect for his mother. And you can imagine how people would argue at great length whether this was disrespecting Mary. And so here the Apostle Paul is. He's in prison. He's under Nero. He's seeking the unity of the Philippians. He calls in everything he can to try to get them to be united. And then he says, all right, I'm going to send an ambassador. It's going to be Timothy. I don't have anybody else like Timothy. No one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, who are they? In Acts 13.13, we read one of them. Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but 
John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. So then there's a fight a couple chapters later between Paul and Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And we find that it says 1538, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him, and this is John Mark, along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, you wouldn't know from Acts 13 that John deserted them. It just says he left them and returned to Jerusalem. But then from chapter 15, you know he deserted them. So all those stonings and beatings and shipwrecks and all those plots against Paul took their toll on John Mark, and John Mark deserted them. When he came back and wanted them to join in the work again, Paul's like, no, he left us. And I don't want to be leaning on a staff that's going to break. And Barnabas says, oh, come on, dude. You know, we all have our failures. Give him another chance. The sweet thing is later, John Mark does get another chance. All right. But Paul and Barnabas divided over that issue. That's that's one of them. Here's another one. Second Timothy 1.15. You are aware of the fact, Paul writes, that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. All who were in Asia turned away from him, all of them. Then in 2 Timothy 4, he says, For Demas, verse 10, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Can you imagine any pastor today or preacher in a sermon saying, Tim Bailey, having loved the world, has deserted me? Can you imagine what the elders would say to him? You know, don't name names. You know, you can have your own personal convictions. And here Paul is not just saying it, but saying it in a letter that's going to be read all through church history. So how do we know Alexander the coppersmith? He says, Alexander the coppersmith, a few verses later, did me much harm. How do we know Alexander the coppersmith? Because Paul writes, he did it. He did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. So he's not just naming him publicly, but he's also being punitive. The Lord will repay him. You know, I love Jews. I don't have any trouble loving that race. Because Jews actually say it. (laughs) You know, they say it. Well, middle American Scandinavians are being repressed. Jews say it. You know, it's such a relief. That's why I love Bob. He says it. And all the men from the house start laughing and won't translate. (laughs) Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his, Timothy's, proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like like a child serving his father. 
You know, if you read the dead guys on this text, you know what they say about this text? They say again and again, all these different passages where it refers. Well, let me read them to you. I haven't read them to you. We see this theme about Timothy all over the place. Galatians 4.19, Paul refers to my children, not Timothy in this case. 1 Thessalonians 2.11, he refers to himself working among the Christians as a father would his own children. Then Titus 1.4, Titus, my true child. Philemon, my child, Onesimus. But then we get into Timothy. Listen to this. I do not write these things, 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exert you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. First Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Second Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my beloved son. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. 1 Corinthians 4.17, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And so we see all through Paul's epistles, the same picture that we see here in the book of Philippians, where he refers to Timothy as serving in the furtherance of the gospel with him, quote, like a father serving, like a child serving his father. What is it that produces diversity and Love in the midst of diversity. Not tolerance, but love. What is it that causes there to be a true relationship of a son and a father? All the dead guys say about this, that true fatherhood is only the fatherhood of God over his children who believe in his son. And that God only allows fathers here on earth to be fathers insofar as they reflect the fatherhood of God. And then they go on and say that even if we're going to talk about physical fatherhood, biological fatherhood, only God owns that title. (laughs) So, you know, you reduce it to the point where we would all say, well, it's, you know, come on. I mean, you know, when it comes to biological reproduction, you know, I have a father. And the dead guys say, no, 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 even there, only God is your true father. But he allows other men to participate in his creation of your biological body. And so how do we think about fatherhood and sonship? How do we think about unity? How do we think about love and peace? How do we think about motherhood? What is it that really is at the center of it? At the center of true unity and true love and true peace in the midst of diversity is the name of Jesus Christ.
And when we love Jesus Christ and live by faith, then there is a sweet unity that pervades our relationships with each other, and we are bright lights that shine in a world that knows nothing of it. Don't be fooled by the world's talk of unity. It's false. Bob Dylan, a long time ago, was being interviewed by a BBC dude. And I remember listening to it in the backyard of my mother. And the BBC dude was this really like cosmic Mother Earth, yin-yang, back to nature, no sugar, no additives kind of dude. And he thought that Bob Dylan was his friend. Bob Dylan is never an interviewer's friend. And so he's asking Dylan about what he thinks about the afterlife and what he thinks about peace. And first he pushes him on peace and he says to him, you know, you know, what about peace? What about peace? What about peace? And finally, Dylan says, you know, something like, dude, do you think that there's ever peace? He said, you don't want to know what peace is. Peace is the moment that the dude stops to load his rifle to reload. He says, that's the only peace we'll ever get on this earth. So then the guy pursues the afterlife issue with him and keeps talking to him and keeps trying to get him to say that he believes in reincarnation. And Dylan's not going along with it. And uh, the guy keeps pushing him. And finally, Dylan says to him, uh, um, he says to him, he says, what do you think? He, he says, you think you come back again and you're going to do it better than you did it this time? He says, you're not going to do it any better. You are who you are. And so we think about the whole question of unity and peace and what this world gives us. And the truth is that the peace of this world lasts about as long as you reload the rifle. And you can say, well, yeah, but America's never had, you know, a foreign oppressor come to our shores and we've never had bloodshed, you know, here on our land except our civil war. And I would say, well, yeah, usually rich nations are able to fight on other lands. <laughs> you know, usually rich nations can choose the hill they stand on. Um, but what about the church of Jesus Christ? Many of you have grown up in homes where... All you knew was conflict between your mother and father as you grew up. And where the parents are at war, the children are more at war. Many of you hated family reunions and hated Christmas because there was no peace. And so here you are in a church and you're saying, is there, is there, is there peace anywhere? And I want to tell you a little story to bring this to an end this morning. And I think it is the story of the existence of Church of the Good Shepherd. Um, and it's, it's completely tied up in the relationship of the Apostle Paul and Timothy, completely tied up. Probably back, um, probably back about 18 years ago, a friend of mine was uh, being installed in a church in Minneapolis, in Minnetonka, and he asked me to preach his installation. And I don't know why, but the Lord directed me to Acts 20 as the text. And if you're familiar with Acts 20, it's a scene where in the midst of the stinking fishing boats of, of Gloucester, uh, but in this case it's Miletus, 
the Apostle Paul is traveling to Jerusalem and he stops and has a layover and he asks the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus to come and meet with him. So they come down and meet with him at the harbor. We don't know exactly what the scene was. I've always pictured it in the midst of the fishing boats with with sand. All right. And he gives this unbelievably intense sermon to them about how they're to care for the flock. All right. He talks about what he was like as a shepherd and what they're to be like as a shepherd. This is the place where he talks about he never failed to say anything that God had for them. And, of course, the subtext to that is there were a lot of reasons I didn't want to say what I had to say to you, but I went ahead and said it. This is where he talks about how he was among them day and night with tears from house to house and publicly. And so you get all this beautiful picture of the work of a faithful shepherd, right? All right, so I'm preaching the text, and I get to the end of the text. And what I find at the end, in fact, I can read it to you in Acts 20, is there's this weird picture at the end of Acts 20. All right, and it says at the end of this sermon, he says, uh, he says, in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, so day and night with tears, Warning, correcting, rebuking, loving them. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All right. So that's the end of the sermon. And then 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 this. All right. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. (laughs) Grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they were accompanying him, him to the ship. So you've got the seagulls, you've got the poop, you've got the smell, you have the calloused men. And in the midst of them is a little band of men a sermon, and then these men kissing, repeatedly kissing each other and crying. And I get, I get there and I think to myself, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen Christian men kiss each other, let alone cry and kiss each other. So what's the deal? So I went ahead and preached the sermon, and I emphasized, you know, the different aspects of the faithful shepherd, you know, and it was a good sermon for an installation. And I remember reading Calvin at the end of the sermon where Calvin says that we're not supposed to be without emotion, that God has given us the emotions and that we should give expression to them. And that seemed a safe thing to say in a Presbyterian church, right? I mean, you'd have to cite Calvin to defend emotions in a Presbyterian church. (laughs) So then a couple years later, I took took another church. And when I took that church, all hell broke loose. few of you know this, but one Sunday when I was at that church, I actually had somebody accompanying me um, with a gun 
to protect me. And it was at the advice of our resident pacifist, Caleb Hess. All hell broke loose in that church. So things went on, and the day came when um, it was time to stand and be counted. And everybody in that church had to vote. And there were a lot of tears. I don't think to say it was poignant quite gets at the nub of the issue. (laughs) Those of you that were there, there was one dude, one of the two patriarchs of the church that was standing there saying, Tim Bailey is a liar. And then Heather was wailing, crying out loud. Remember that, Heather? Yeah, she's not here. It was awful. So anyhow, everybody stood up. Everybody was counted. They counted the votes. Lots of people came and voted who never, ever worshipped there, including a vice president of Indiana University. I don't think I'd ever seen him in worship in the four years I'd been there. And I distinctly remember he was wearing blue jeans. And then I want to say something like a year later, there was a um, there was a service of Church of the Good Shepherd where elders and deacons were installed. It was a Sunday evening service, and the men who were going to be our nursing fathers, our shepherds, were standing up front. <clears throat> and when they had been ordained and installed, I don't know if you remember this. But when they had been ordained and installed, it came time for us to greet them. And what I remember is that as they stood facing the congregation and we went up to greet them, you know what happened? We went down the line and there were tears and we kissed each other on the face. And then I realized why there were tears and kissing on the beach in Ephesus. There were tears and kissing Because God had blessed them to be able to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. You remember the riot in Ephesus where Paul's life was on the line and those men stood with him? Do you know when even the Brits cry? It's a miracle, but it happens. Even the British people, the men, cry when they get together and remember the war. You get together with veterans of a war, and all of a sudden men who have been stoic and have never said a word about the war to their sons, they start crying. You know why they cry? They cry because they're with men who are willing to give up their lives for the motherland. Have you ever given up your life for the motherland? No, you haven't. You haven't, because this is not our motherland. I will never, ever prostitute myself to the United States of America. Never. And it's not because I don't love America. If you've ever traveled overseas, you'll love America. (laughs) But it's because this world isn't my home. 
And let me tell you something. When this world is not your home, when you are really a wayfaring stranger, then those who are on pilgrimage are your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers, your true sons in the faith. And then you cry, your men, your Brits, and you cry, and you kiss, and then you shine like stars. Now, it seems self-serving for me to do this, but I don't mind. This church is that place. Now, it's not a goal we're reaching for. It is present in this church. I could right now, and you'll all be happy knowing me, you'll be happy that I won't do it. But right now, I could walk off this platform, and I could go to man after man after man in this church, and I would kiss them, and they would kiss me. And it's not hackneyed, and it's not fake. Why? Because in this church we have an agreement that we are on pilgrimage. And because we consider other men's interests more important than our own. And because Jesus Christ is in our hearts. That's it. So that's why I preached this this morning can't imagine that God has blessed many men with a church that is so filled with love as this one is. I mean, it's just true. If you don't know this church, too bad for you. But it's a church filled with love. In our elders' meetings, we actually enjoy them. And not many elders will tell you that. At our congregational meetings, we actually have fun. When our women get together, they fight. But that's because they have children and they have to fight. You know, the whole point of having children is so that you can fight, right? No, I'm just kidding. The men fight, the women fight, but the women love each other. And the women consider unity more important than their own children, and that's the greatest miracle a church could ever have. And so I want to say to God and to you that um, I'm very, very thankful for this church and for the fact that you love me and that you love each other and... If God wills that we continue to have danger, then we will continue to love. And if danger ever leaves this church, there will be no more kissing and there will be no more crying. And it's time to shut the doors. And so we actually want danger here. That's why we have a dangerous boys club. And as they learn to shoot bows and arrows, then they will learn to use the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And they will find wives who don't try to get them to shut up when they wield that sword. But wives who love their husbands, most particularly at the point where they are wielding the sword. Wives who never, ever try to shut their husbands when their husbands are being faithful.
but only try to shut them up when they aren't. Let's pray.